Welcome back to the program. We know that real success demands strange sacrifices of those who worship at its altar. But to those willing to make those sacrifices possess a unique kind of obsessiveness, the proverbial fire in the belly that can often only be fueled by youthful pain and determination. In short, is greatness a kind of OCD run amok, a kind of mental illness that in the right mind achieves magnificent feats? That's our focus today as we talk with our guest, Joshua Kendall. Joshua Kendall is the author of the previous books, The Man Who Made Lists and The Forgotten Founding Father. He's a journalist whose work has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, the L.A. Times, the Boston Globe, and Business Week. It is my pleasure to welcome Joshua Kendall to the program to talk about his newest work, America's Obsessives, The Compulsive Energy That Built a Nation. Josh Kendall, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure to be on with you, Jeff. It's great to have you here. Talk a little bit about this obsessiveness and and whether or not, as you've looked at these successes, and we'll detail some of the seven that you look at in the book, whether or not you think that this is an essential ingredient, this compulsiveness, this obsessiveness, is an essential ingredient for real success. Yes. uh, I I really want want to start a national dialogue about, you know, what leads to success. I have a, I had a piece in Slate a couple of weeks ago called Madness Made Them Great, which was an overview of the book. And I, and I want to argue that there's kind of an irrational element that leads to success. As I noted in the Slate article, that hard work and intelligence can get you only so far, and, the, and that it's this maniacal overdrive which tends to take you to the top in certain fields. So I chose icons uh, from politics, marketing, uh, uh, sports in various different fields, and I, as an ex, as examples of people who have risen to the top uh, through their obsessions. And the book starts with Steve Jobs, and uh, to, to give a contemporary face to to uh, the obsessive superachiever. And again, there was just an irrational side to Jobs. I mean, he he was a, he was great at design, but he, he kind of went over the top. Uh, as I know, when he was dying of, of cancer, he had a, 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 an oxygen mask on, and he ripped the mask off uh, and yelled at his doctors, please design me a new mask. And, and this is just the, the irrational side. Malcolm Gladwell in Outliers talks about how it takes 10,000 hours of practice for someone like Bill Gates to become a computer whiz in high school. And I want to add this kind of irrational element. It takes a lot of practice, but it takes something else, and that fire in the belly often comes from a dark place. And one of the things I noticed in my seven icons along with jobs is there's often a lot of uh, pain and uh, confusion in their childhoods, and these icons kind of lean on their obsession as, as a way to survive in childhood. Uh, the example of Ted Williams, uh, Boston's uh, the, the Boston Red Sox superstar, he grew up in San Diego uh, his mother uh, was was a Salvation Army nut. She, she she spent all day and night riding the bus trying to save the town's drunks and prostitutes. His father was an alcoholic. And as a little boy, he bonded with his bat, kind of like Linus uh, in Peanuts. And, and, he, and he said, when I wasn't practicing, when I wasn't eating or practicing swing, uh, pra- when, when, when I wasn't eating or sleeping, I was practicing swinging. And, and he, he's doing this at five years old, and he's going to do it for the next 40 years. And all he ever thought about was hitting, uh, and, and and these obsessions kind of come from some source of pain, but it, it's a fuel, 
that, that, that tends to take these people over the top. And, and we live in such a competitive culture that if you're thinking about hitting 24-7 as Williams was or design as Jobs was or beauty as Estee Lauder, another one of my icons was, that that really can help you in your career. It's interesting that we are so competitive and so obsessed with success in so many ways, and yet we also have this dialogue from time to time about finding balance in our lives, which in many ways runs counter to what you're talking about. Yes. uh, the, the, The people in my book, these super achievers, didn't find balance. Uh, and I think it's possible to be uh, to have a good marriage and to to have good relationships with your kids and be successful, but I don't think it's as common uh, as uh, as the path that that these people went on of being a little bit crazy. Uh, the people in my book, uh, most of them had very tempestuous family lives. Uh, Charles Lindbergh uh, spent. He had five children, and he spent about two two months a year with his wife. And he had three German mistresses. Uh, and he spent uh, he would go to Germany and spend a week with his ger- secret German families uh, every every uh, every few months. And Charles Lindbergh also had other girlfriends, uh, so he he, he was uh, kind of a sex maniac. And and Charles Lindbergh with his American children. Uh, a lot of one of the characteristics of the obsessives is, is that they love lists, and Charles Lindbergh kept lists, a kind of mega chart on his American children. So he ruled the family, as I joke, not with his fists but with his lists. And when his daughter Reeve, who's now a writer, was uh, chewing gum, he would uh, keep track of that and then give her a lecture. So these are people who are very difficult to be around, and so I, so so that's what they they, they had this form of mental illness, obsessive compulsive personality disorder. But the surprising thing that I found is having this disorder, even though it impairs their social relationships, is actually a big asset in the business world. If you're totally uh, preoccupied with yourself and you don't have – because we tend to think of of, of people in the business world as team players. But in our culture, uh, if you go it alone and do your own thing, remember Charles Lindbergh is the lone eagle, uh, that you can often rise to the top. It does beg the question, though, about the chicken or the egg. Did these people become obsessive because they realized at some point that they have a unique ability or a unique talent that they have to bring to the fore, or is it the obsessiveness that, in fact, gives rise to the talent? It's a little bit of both. Uh, As I argue that they often have kind of these existential crises in childhood and they latch onto the obsession uh, another example is Estee Lauder. Uh, she grew up as a Jewish girl in Queens, New York, and uh, she came from an immigrant family, and her mother uh, had six children with a first husband, and then the first husband leaves her, and then the mother finds a second husband with whom she has two children, including Estee. There's only one problem, that the second husband is 10 years younger. So the mother starts this elaborate beauty ritual as soon as husband number two goes off to work, and at three years old, Estee Lauder is helping her mother uh, look young and beautiful to keep her husband, and that becomes the obsession. She's going to do that for the next 80 years. That becomes the business paradigm, uh, the, 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 the department store mini makeover. And as I, as I joke in the book, I mean, without her, her business as an alibi, she might have been arrested for assault with deadly face powder or something. 
She would go up to strangers and perform makeovers. Uh, she would meet them in elevators and, and do a makeover. Rose Kennedy used to come to her house in Palm Beach for tennis and a makeover. I interviewed her, her granddaughter, who's a billionaire who works at the company, and her granddaughter went with her grandmother with Estee to, to, her, to school for a parent-teacher conference, and, of course, the teacher uh, got a makeover. So these people are a little bit out of control, but it's something that starts in childhood, and they see a certain success with it. Ted Williams, the bat was also his way to connect with people. He found a baseball coach, and you know, then they become successful in high school, and, and it kind of feeds on itself. But the intensity with which they latch on to these obsessions usually comes from some kind of childhood adversity. A lot of my obsessives came from families where there was a lot of discord. Uh, Lindbergh's parents couldn't stand each other. His father was also a ladies' man. His father was a congressman. And, his, and in those days, you couldn't get divorced. And Lindbergh grew up in Washington, and he and his mother would live at a rooming house, and his father would live separately. And there was just a lot of chaos. And he had no friends in childhood. His mother would have to pay uh, neighborhood kids to play with him. And they become kind of loners. And, and Lindbergh, in adolescence, he loved machines. He would kind of ogle the, the gadgets at the local hardware store. And, you know, that, that turned into his love for his plane and, and his, his love of gadgets. So something usually in childhood starts and it just becomes kind of hardwired into the brain after a while. What about somebody like Larry Ellison, who you also talk about in the book, for whom success is about success in many ways? It's less about the work than the obsession is about just achieving success. Right. Larry Ellison, uh, I, I, I speak about in the intro, in introduction because he, he is what we typically think of a super achiever. Uh, to use the psychoanalytic jargon, we, we tend to think of them as narcissists uh, or people who just care about the self. But Larry Ellison wasn't an obsessive. Uh, he had some childhood adversity. Uh, he, he was like Jobs. Uh, he, he was adopted. But Larry Ellison has always cared about being the biggest and the best. Uh, you know, in America's Cup, he wants the biggest boat and he wants to make the most money. I guess he makes you know, $100 million a year now, in America's biggest you know, annual salary. But he was, he was obsessive but not in the way that Steve Jobs was obsessive or Lindbergh was obsessive. He didn't care about the details. Obsessives uh, care about minutia. Uh, Larry Ellison was never that way. Uh, I interviewed one of his ex-wives, uh, and there, there are four to choose from, uh, <laughs> and I interviewed ex-wife number two, who was, who was married to him as he was starting Oracle, and uh, she noticed that the, the manual... The, the original manual for Oracle was littered with spelling mistakes. Now, someone like Jobs, a good obsessive, would go ballistic uh, with, with a misplaced comma. Uh, Lindbergh was also the same way. Uh, as I report in the New York Times in a story that ran the other day, you know, when he wrote his memoir, he was obsessed with punctuation. But Larry Ellison didn't care about these little things, uh, as his ex-wife told me, you know, he just ignored them. He was, only, he was obsessive and he wanted to make it but he didn't love rules, orders, lists, cleanliness. And those are the characteristics of obsessive uh, compulsive personality disorder. And that's what I call the superachievers disease, which people like Jobs and Jefferson and Lindbergh and Estee Lauder and Ted Williams had. Are these individuals then and people like them, are they the outliers? Are there also a lot of other 
successful people, CEOs, what, what have you, or people from other lines of work, that in fact don't possess these traits? Yes. Uh, what I wanted to do, to do is is talk about a standard pathway to success that's been ignored. Because we do know uh, about, again, Larry Ellison, the narcissist, people who are bossy, and, 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 but, but, but the, that, that, they, that they care about minutiae, they care about cleanliness. Steve Jobs used to take white gloves to do dust checks on the floor of the Apple factory in Fremont, and when he saw a few specks, he would just go ballistic. I mean, that's this kind of irrational side. But again, you can be well-adjusted and be successful. But I think especially now, uh, where we live in a country of the 1%, that, that, you know, that, that, that there's such a difference between those who make it and, and those who don't make it, and, and it takes so much energy to rise to the top, and being a little bit mad and not having good relationships with other people, paradoxically, it's kind of an asset in this just incredibly competitive society that we live in right now. Talk about the difference in these qualities. You talked about Estee Lauder before. The difference in these qualities as they manifest themselves in men versus women. Yeah, I think women can be as obsessive as men. Uh, I only chose one woman uh, among my seven, and that's largely because uh, women just didn't have access to power until a half century ago. You couldn't become president or couldn't start a company. Estee Lauder was the only woman listed... Uh, in Time magazine as one as one of the top 20 entrepreneurs of the 20th century. But women can definitely uh, be obsessive. And I think if I'd written the book 50 years from now, I p- could probably find a lot of people in Silicon Valley, uh, uh, female uh, executives uh, with the same obsessive traits. Uh, and, and one of the characteristics of the obsessives uh, is that they, they tend to, uh, especially the men and the women as well, is that they are, uh, the men are womenizers. And if you think of the New York City's mayoral race, uh, <laughs> you, you have an example of that. But, but compulsive sexuality often goes hand in hand with obsessionality because obsessionals don't know how to build, re- build human relationships with other people. I've talked about Lindbergh with his three German wives and his assorted girlfriends, for him, sex was like going to the gas station. He didn't really have a sense of, of emotional intimacy. Another, uh, my, my favorite obsessive in the book is Melville Dewey of the Dewey Decimal System. And you might think of him as an obscure figure, but the Dewey Decimal System was, was, was big stuff in the 19th century. It was really the 19th century's Google. I'm actually doing a story for Wired about the relationship mm-hmm. between Melville Dewey and Sergey Brin. Because before you had the Dewey Decimal System, which comes out in 1876, there's really no way to do systematic research. Uh, libraries, books were all thrown all over the place, and he gave order to our libraries. Uh, and he also starts the first library school at Columbia University uh, in the 1880s. But, but Dewey was also a sex maniac. He was a little bit like the mayor of San Diego, uh, liked to grab and kiss. And he was eventually kicked out of the American Library Association, the organization that he helped to found uh, in 1905 at the age of 50. And again, the obsessionality often goes hand in hand uh, with with sexual compulsivity. Another example is Alfred Kinsey, uh, whom I report on with the two Kinsey reports in the 1947 and 53. And Kinsey really changed the way we think of sexuality. You know, it's hard to think of the gay marriage laws without Kinsey. 
and that was his project uh, to make the world more tolerant of, of different forms of sexuality. Kinsey himself was a sex maniac, which he, which is something that he that he had to hide. Uh, as his wife told Life magazine, I never see Alfred anymore since he took up sex. Uh, and he was gay, and he and he had a lot of uh, quick relationships with gay men. But again, that's an example of, of, of obsessionality going hand in hand with sexual compulsivity. And the way Kinsey uh, wrote those reports was obsessional, that he collected mountains and mountains of data. He just loved collecting data. He would go to London, and at, and at midnight, he would be at Piccadilly Circus counting the prostitutes. And that's another thing that obsessives love to do, is they love to count and they love to quantify. But those quirks somehow tend, tend to go with sexual compulsivity. One of the other aspects of, of many of these people is that even after achieving success, they're pretty unhappy. Yes. Uh, th- there's usually a hole and a kind of emptiness in their personal life, and, and one of the ways they try to fill it is by a lot of sex partners. A couple of them did well. Uh, one of the things that a couple of them found extremely patient spouses Estee Lauder had a, had a very nice husband who was an accountant. Uh, he, he used to drink a lot, and maybe because she was high maintenance, but she lived a long life, and she was crushed uh, you know, when he died, and, and, and she developed Alzheimer's and kind of lost it after he died. But uh, when, when they can find a nice, extremely patient spouse, Thomas Jefferson uh, loved his wife very dearly, and then his wife died after 10 years, and his wife was a cleanliness nut, and she would make a lot of soap in, in, in Monticello. But Thomas Jefferson then found uh, an, 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 a long-term partner who was his slave, uh, Sally Hemings. And, and as I argue, that, uh, he, that, that that was perfectly consistent with his character disorder. I mean, he was a control freak, so to have a long-term partner who's 30 years younger and, you ha- and whom you happen to own uh, makes perfect sense, and, there, and thereby I'm, I'm flipping upside down uh, the standard line, which is someone of Jefferson's character could never have had a relationship with a black woman, but Jefferson was kind of a control freak, uh, and he, he also loved order, rules, and lists, uh, and, and, and so if they find a, a partner who's very submissive, it can kind of anchor them and help them uh, help them achieve some balance in their in their life, but, but that partner is often put in a very difficult position. What happens as they age, as they have success, as they mature, as they arguably mellow? And we can look at, for example, at, at some of the contemporary examples, people like Steve Jobs and, and Larry Ellison, and see that as they have gotten older, as they've continued to have success, they did become more mellow over time. Yes, yeah, Steve Jobs uh, he, he seems to have found a very supportive partner, uh, but I but I think you know he, he died at fifty six, and and the case can certainly be made that he you know he worked himself to death. I mean that he couldn't stop. I mean he was he was he was you know trying to and he did you know revolutionize about five or six industries at the same time from publishing uh, to the movies. I mean and 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 he he really uh, couldn't stop. Uh, Larry Ellison, uh, as he said, had very tempestuous relations with women, and he, and he doesn't quite fit into my mold of of the obsessive. I think he's he's mellowed a bit, 
I guess, in, in terms of my obsessives in the book, uh, Ted Williams is an interesting case that he had three short marriages. Uh, and he would just yell at his wife. He, he would take his wife fishing, and if she messed up the tackle, he would uh, he would just uh, just start barking at her. And, and one of his wives uh, said to the judge, the judge asked her, you know, can you go back to Mr. Williams? And she said, are you kidding? He was impossible. But late in life, he actually uh, fell in love with an older woman. Uh, the, the ball players used to refer to her as Granny. She was white-haired and five years older, but she was very supportive, and uh, that did really help him kind of mellow. So sometimes, if they can find a partner, uh, and the partner serves kind of a mothering function. Ted Williams's partner was older. Uh, Henry Heinz had a very supportive wife. Henry Heinz is the ketchup guy who turned ketchup into our national sauce around 1900. He was also a cleanliness nut, and his factories were spick and span, just like the Apple factory. And his factory in Pittsburgh was a must-see tourist destination for a half century. And he would like to show off to everyone just how clean it was. But he found a very supportive wife, and they can really help. But again, uh, these wives often end up going to uh, uh, psychiatric hospitals or having alcohol problems because these obsessives are, are very hard driving. And and that's one of the themes for my book is that we need to see their strengths and weaknesses. And one of their strengths is that they can build companies. So if you're uh, an angel investor and, and you meet a 25-year-old who can't look you in the eye and looks very obsessed about his product, you might want to give him your money. You just might want to not give him your daughter's email. He, uh, these people are very difficult uh, to be married to, but they, can, they have the energy and the determination to start uh, the next great company. What about looking at this in an international perspective? Does it require a situation that, like they might find here in the U.S. where those kind of opportunities, the entrepreneurial opportunities, are more abundant as ways to, to find outlets for these obsessions as opposed to perhaps an economic environment where it's more difficult? Yes, I think you have this character type in all parts of the world. I call it America's Obsessives because our kind of capitalism is a little bit rougher, and I think they fit in better here. But you see some obsessionality in European icons. For instance, David Beckham. Remember there was that movie, Bend It Like Beckham? Mm -hmm. And he, uh, his, his talent was the corner kick, something that he practiced over and over again. But he's very obsessive. When he, go, when he goes into a hotel room, all the Coke cans have to be facing out. I mean, he has all these obsessive kicks. And they're definitely Brits and people in Western Europe uh, with this character. I think they fit better in here, a bit better here. And also in Asian cultures, there's just a sense of getting along is more important. And in America, being eccentric and standing out is a way to establish your brand. Henry Heinz, uh, you know, established this you know, this brand for his food, and you know, Warren Buffett just bought it a couple of months ago for $28 billion, and uh, he was a little bit eccentric, uh, but. But 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 branding is so important, and distinguishing yourself from everyone else is just so important in the American marketplace. And in, in, in Europe, there's a little bit more of a sense of, of community, and that's kind of a crisis right now in America, is that the ties that bond us are fraying, and we're all little corporations. And if you have an obsessive character and you don't get along with other people, you may have a leg up uh, in this very, very competitive uh, country that we live in now.
Joshua Kendall. The book is America's Obsessives, The Compulsive Energy That Built a Nation. Joshua, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Uh, It's been a pleasure, Jeff. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. 